You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. Eight, the singular eye. The three children were hurriedly and gruffly handled down a spacious, ovular passageway. The inside of the sky chamber was every bit as magnificent as the outside had been, with jewels and prisms laid into the walls, providing a throbbing illumination, giving off a soothing, shimmering, watery light. Roundish and large, the passageway seemed almost organic, like being inside of a giant beehive. Except for the impossibly perfect polished sheen to the material that made up the curved walls and floor, it was diamond hard to the touch and was a dull pearly white in color. The very architecture of this place spoke of ages-old intellect. Harmony, balance, and perfection were woven into its very fabric. This truly was a device of eternal beings, none of which made Max feel very good at all. It just underlined how utterly stupid he had been to have led the three of them here, of all places, to the one place they were most likely to be caught. He had a hard enough time outwitting teachers at school, or Jack McNulty, or Mr. Blister. What in the world had made him even think he was going to be able to outwit these beings? How had things gone so horribly wrong so fast? He felt incredibly foolish and stupid and it was as though he were in a dream now, watching everything happen to him from outside of himself. Casey looked pale and had withdrawn into her own mind. Her eyes were empty, and she was in the emotional equivalent of the fetal position. She shambled along like a zombie as their captors, Mothdeth and Nephthys, encased in spectacularly shiny golden armor, pushed them forward. Ian was somewhere in between completely fascinated with actually seeing the inside of a UFO and terrified out of his mind. If I have to go, this is a really brilliant way to go. But I really, really hope I don't have to go, he seemed to be thinking. Max felt more angry with himself than scared. If we die, we die, he was thinking stupidly. It was over. Now, no one was free to stop them, whatever they were up to. But their captors were clearly nervous and agitated, which really made no sense at all, as this was their own ship. It was like they were sneaking the three children along the passageways, trying to avoid detection themselves. The party would halt, one of them would go ahead and wave the rest forward, and then they would all continue on, and then abruptly they would stop and wait again, inexplicably. They continued on in this fashion for some time, and it also began to become apparent to Max that the inside of the sky chamber bore no relationship whatsoever to the outside in terms of dimensions. It was bigger on the inside than the outside, basically. Then they came to a hallway that ended in a round alcove in a small dais. Nephthys stepped onto the platform and nodded. Instantly, two large, perfectly round mirrors swung towards him from either side. When they lined up such that his reflection stretched to infinity in either direction, there was a small flash of light, and he was suddenly gone. Max's eyes went wide, and he looked over at Casey, his eyes shouting, Casey! Mirrors! They use mirrors! That must mean something! But Casey was oblivious and lost in her own inner world of fear. Now, Mothdet was pushing the three of them up towards the platform. Max looked at him and glared. Thou wilt not I miss so, Mothdet hissed back at him and inclined his head up to the platform. Up there. Max, Casey, and Ian stepped up reluctantly together. The mirrors were still in place, and an infinity of Max's stretched out before him. When Max's eyes rose to meet those of his own reflection, an infinite line of Max's did the same. At that very instant, he felt a tugging sensation deep in his belly, and suddenly he felt himself translated into a wholly different location. Max, Casey, and Ian were now in a room like the inside of a giant cylinder. Nephthys was here, and was already pulling the three children away from the transporter platform in the middle of the room. 
A few moments later, Mafdet suddenly appeared in a small flash of white light where they had just been standing. Now, Max noticed a chair in this room. A chair that looked completely out of place in the otherwise perfect and harmonious environment inside the sky chamber. It was cruder, made of iron as opposed to the more serene, exotic materials they had seen in the chamber thus far. It was tilted back somewhat, and there were several nasty-looking devices attached to it for obvious use on its occupant, like a dentist chair. Directly in front of the chair, on a black wrought-iron pedestal, was an ovular gemstone shaped like a great eyeball. It was storm cloud black, smoky and ominous as impending doom. It was large enough that a grown man would have had to wrap both his arms around it to move it. Yet, Max found when he caught a glimpse of this dark gem out of his peripheral vision, he suddenly felt a sickening vertigo. Something about the gem suggested a void, a hole in the fabric of reality rather than a solid object, an absence rather than a presence, a flaw. But whenever Max looked directly at the stone, it seemed real enough. Max was suddenly reminded of the small, blue, egg-shaped diamond the man in the Starland Museum of Antiquities had tried to use on him. "'I have a disease,' said a voice suddenly, somewhere above them. "'A foul sickness which riddles my body!' They looked up and could now see the outline of a single man, a shadowed silhouette against the soft light above. This figure was moving along a terrace or ledge above them, strolling around the cylindrical wall of the chamber as he spoke, his voice echoing off the cavernous round walls. This, this plague which just saves me, this canker which I have endured now for several hundred years, this enemy, this foe which consumes a little piece of me every day, it has a name. Now, the man stepped forward so that his face could be seen in the light. It was a face framed by midnight black hair, long and pulled back into a tail, with sharp, strong, angular features. The face white as marble, and the flesh looked as if a hundred mirrors had been smashed to pieces against it, and it had all healed horribly and regrown haphazardly over a thousand jagged nuggets of glass embedded deeply under the skin. It is called age. It was Johnny Siren. And it is unacceptable. This time, Max took an involuntary step backwards. There was no hiding from Siren. Not in this room. Not in this place. There was absolutely nowhere to run to. No doors, no exits of any kind. Hello, Max Quick, Siren said, his gaze fixing Max the low, velvety tones of his accented voice turning Max's blood to ice. This caught Max off guard. How Siren had discovered his name, he had no idea. Johnny Siren, Max answered grimly. See, I know your name as well. Siren gave a tight grin, acknowledging Max's jab back at him. Ah, I see you know one of my names. But tell me, do you know any of the other ones? Siren answered in his maddeningly vague European-sounding accent. When no one answered his challenge, he continued. No? Ah, well, I thought you may have guessed by now. But Siren's gaze swung to Max's companions. And Ian Keating! Ian's eyebrows shot up. He was apparently baffled as to how Siren knew his name also. But the real surprise was when his gaze came to rest on Casey and he said... And you, Casey, what was your last name again? Cole? Or was it something else? Siren laughed uproariously. I certainly know you. Casey whimpered and backed away. We shall have to catch up later on, you and I. Max turned a quizzical gaze to Casey. What was that all about? Just then, two kids suddenly stepped out of the nearby shadows. Ace and Sasha Foix. Max noticed both now had marks on their left hands. A single glyph burned directly into the skin. They were both dressed in simple tunics and sandals now, with a vaguely Egyptian or Greek feel to them. Max looked them up and down. Hey, Ace, Max whispered, leaning closer. Nice threads. 
but Ace and Sasha both remained slack, clearly struggling not to react and to keep their eyes focused on nothing. The fear in Ace's eyes and the tears threatening to pour from Sasha's told Max that he wasn't going to get an answer to his barbs. There was a low chuckle from Muffdet. They're slaves now of the House of Jadith. They have been trained. They do not speak unless the masters tell them to. And they certainly do not speak to other slaves. Muffdet leered mysteriously. But Max answered reflexively, I'm not a slave. Muffdet only looked amused and cocked an eyebrow. No. Muffdet clapped his hands twice, and Ace and Sasha immediately left the room and were gone. Muffdet turned and gave Max a look that seemed to say, Soon, you too will be coming and going from rooms to the clap of my hands. So that explained how Siren knew their names. He must have gotten them from Sasha and Ace. But Siren was already speaking again, addressing Max. I know you are at the house in Texas, that it was you who triggered the guardian nunchuck set into the doorframe. And I also know that you have been inside my book, and have seen firsthand that whatever is written on its pages must eventually come to pass. So now you know why I had to let you go the first time we met at the Museum of Antiquities back in Starland. I had seen you in the pages of my book, so I knew that I could do nothing to you until after you entered the book and that particular destiny had been fulfilled. But I should inform you, you are not shown on any more pages, Max. I am no longer bound by that restriction. Max stared back at Siren, feeling cornered. Ian was breathing hard. He seemed to be on the brink of panic. And Casey had pulled completely into herself and was whimpering softly. But you, Ian, Siren said, you are another matter. You are shown once more in my book. There is an event it shows that has yet to come to pass. Or have you forgotten? It seems you're destined to become a meal for a hungry pack of wolves sometime in the near future. Ian turned white. He knew Siren was telling the truth. He was going to die, just like Sweetlid. But Siren was merciless. In fact, I think those very crows you're wearing right now are the ones in shreds and tatters in the illustration. The tyranny of the page is absolute. There's actually nothing I could do to save you, even if I wanted to. And I don't. But on top of that, you stole from me one of my precious books right out of my house. That took some cheek. Siren held up the very book he had used to escape from the serpents and mermaids and tapped it gently with one white intaglio-scarred fingertip. But luckily, I recovered it when I picked up all your little friends in that gang of yours. The one with the colorful name, Serpents and Mermaids. Your invention, Ian, I am told. Well, with you here now, I am proud to say we have all the sub-VPs finally in custody. And I actually have you, Max, to thank for it. When you trip the Guardian Namshub in Texas, we knew that someone somewhere was loose in the time stop. So naturally, we went looking for them. And that's when we stumbled upon the serpents and mermaids. It wasn't hard to find them, actually. What with other punfighters and shenanigans? We had just never bothered to look before. Max's heart sank. No! All these kids, captured, made slaves, because of him. It was his fault. He should have been the one in chains, not them. But Ian's mind was elsewhere. His eyes were on the book in Siren's hand. Siren had called it one of my precious books. You! You're Jonathan Roseblood, Saranus. Ian managed to choke out, eyes wide. Yes, Ian. Very good. I am Jonathan Roseblood, Saranus. Casey let out a fresh whimper at this news. But it's not really your book, is it? Ian blurted out. Someone else made it, and you just stole it and wrote your name on it. 
property of Jonathan Rosebud Saranus. Ha! You don't actually know how to make a book yourself, do you? Siren snarled at Ian and appeared about to order something particularly vicious done to him and then seemed to recall that Ian would die soon anyway. So Siren simply replied, No, actually, I don't. I acquired the book long ago. The creation of such a book is not beyond my comprehension, even still. But I do understand much. Shall I teach you? Why not, since you, Ian, are to die anyway, by the very properties I shall describe. Well, here it is then. The book itself actually does nothing. No power resides within it. But when a sentient mind perceives the words in the book, some principle, you might call it quantum mechanics, but that would be a clumsy approximation, dictates that certain things come into being. Your attention is focused, and your attention is what manifests. The book interacts with the mind in a very curious way, inverting what we think of as observation with manifestation. The eyes are not organs of sight, they are organs of rendering. But I do not need to tell you that it works. You have used my book. You have seen for yourself, firsthand, the power of words to summon into being Simokra. And as for my name, Siren is my Americanized moniker, a shortening of the more foreign-sounding Saranus. Saranus? Siren? Siren? I am disappointed, though, that you did not figure it out on your own. That stung Ian. Well, I'll tell you what I have figured out. I'll figure out that you snuck us in here, that you're hiding us from somebody, probably that Jadith woman, and you're up to something you're not supposed to be. Ian fired back, his voice shaking as he did so. Siren suddenly looked uncomfortable, as did Muftet and Nephthys. Siren's lip curled, and then he said, Well then, what do I think about that? Is that we should be getting on with whatever it is we're up to. Don't you think? And then Siren nodded to Muftet and Nephthys. They moved to grab Max. Max made a quick turn on one foot, which should have sent him whooshing into a blur across the room. But instead, he only stumbled. What the? Oh no. Pocket powers must be turned off inside of a sky chamber. It made sense. Their pocket powers had also been nullified when they were merely in close proximity to a sky chamber at the house in Texas. Moffat and Nephthys effortlessly grabbed Max and started hauling him over to the iron chair. But just then, Max had an inspiration, a mad impulse he decided to act on. He screwed up his courage, half not believing what he was about to do, but he had nothing to lose, so he barked in the most commanding, confident voice he could muster. You will release me immediately! To his utter shock, Moffat and Nephthys complied. Their clammy, gold-clad hands let go, and they backed away, eyes full of new fear now as they stared at him. They were suddenly unsure of what to do next. Max glowered and pulled himself erect, standing as tall and proud as he could. You may treat the black-headed people in this fashion, but you will not treat me this way. That did it. As soon as he said, black-headed people, they both looked extremely uncomfortable. Moffat shot a look up at Saranus, looking for guidance. Max turned now squarely on Saranus, his heart pounding. He had seen enough of Jadith to see that arrogance worked, so he turned it on full steam. You believe I have lost my memory, but in fact it has long been restored to me. I have my own reasons for the charade which do not concern you. A spark of fear now flickered unmistakably across Saranus's eyes. Ian was staring at Max, though, as though he were mental. What was he doing? But you've given me no other choice but to reveal myself to these two slaves. Max spat the words for best effect and thus end my charade, which I am very displeased about. Moffat and Nephthys were clearly terrified now, and Saranus stepped forward, pacing a little bit now to relieve his tension. When he spoke, he was clearly choosing his words very carefully. Our apologies then, my lord. We did not know. 
Seranus pinched up his eyes and weighed Max. He wasn't completely buying this yet, but it was clear that he was terrified of a Max with his memory intact. In fact, Max felt that Seranus feared greatly for his life right now. Even the small chance that Max might not be bluffing was enough to make him cower. What power was it that he possessed that could make Seranus so afraid, Max wondered. But Seranus was undeterred from probing gently to see what he could find out. And how long has your memory been restored to you, my lord? Seranus asked gently, in the most submissive way possible. Max's heart was thudding like a jackhammer, and it felt like the vein at his neck were about to split open. He suspects I'm lying. He's trying to trip me up. But Max's brain scrambled for an answer. Something, anything that might spook Seranus further. And suddenly his intuition leapt at an idea. Ever since I had a little visit with Mr. E. Seranus blinked in surprise, a visible bolt of fear shooting through him. Apparently, this was a plausible explanation. Max grinned inwardly. Not that it is your place to ask me such questions, Max hissed viciously, anxious to end any more questioning that could trip him up. Now, Max went on the offensive before Seranus could recover, stepping at him with as much malice in his body language as possible. Tell me, Seranus, what exactly was it that you were about to do to me when you thought I was without my memory? Max let ice seep through his gaze at Seranus, and then turned pointedly towards the chair. Now, Seranus was in a difficult position. He had clearly been about to do something nasty to Max, to take advantage of the fact that he was without his memory. The chair frankly looked like a torture device of some kind. Seranus considered very carefully, his eyes studying Max for any clue as to what he was up to. Several long moments passed. When Seranus reached the point where to refuse to answer any longer would have clearly been rude and insubordinate, he simply continued to stand mute, with one finger tapping his lip, as though still considering his answer. Max realized he had to act. I asked you a question, Seranus. Then, something changed in Seranus's demeanor. That is true, and I did not answer you. Frankly, I expected to be on my knees in front of you crumbling by now. Then I would have known you were telling the truth. But since I am not, you are not. A shot of fear now chewed through Max, but he had already thought of what he might do in case this happened, and he whirled, shouting, Moftet! Nephthys! Bring him to me, now! But both centurions were in conflict with themselves. In fact, they seemed to be more afraid of Max at the moment than Seranus. They began gingerly moving back towards the dais in preparation for a hasty escape. Don't be fools, Seranus hissed down at them in frustration. He's pretending. We'd all be dead already if he weren't. Max watched as Moffdet hesitated and stared back at him. Something about what Seranus had just said must have rung true. Am I really that cruel? Max thought, his heart sinking. I would have killed all three of them? Just like that? How? These thoughts must have shown in his eyes, as Moffdet suddenly made a decision and drew himself back to his full menacing height. Thy little help! Moffdet snarled, enraged now that he had been fooled. Thou shalt beg for death before thy end! And with that, he ran at Max, who made an attempt to whoosh again out of reflex. But without pocket powers, Max was just an ordinary little kid again, and Moffdet was a huge, full-grown man. Moffdet easily scooped him up and put him in a headlock as he lifted him off the ground. Casey and Ian watched with horror as Moffdet dragged Max over to the iron chair. While Moffdet held his wriggling form in place, Nephthys snapped the cuffs closed around his wrists, his ankles, his neck, and even around his head. As this was happening, Jonathan Seranus suddenly appeared nearby. He leaned down and whispered, I'm going to enjoy this, Max. I'm going to enjoy this very much. Max was completely bound and immobilized now. His arms, legs, torso, shoulders, and even his neck had chains, bracelets, and cuffed bindings wound tightly around them, and he could feel them slicing into his flesh. There was a vise around his head that prevented him from turning it even slightly. When he was fully strapped into place, 
Max found himself physically unable to look away from the gemstone in front of the chair. The sensation of vertigo, of the gem being a hole in reality, was stronger than ever. At the sight of Max, Casey suddenly erupted, her voice quivering as she yelled at Siren, Don't you even have any kind of a heart at all? That seemed to catch Siren off guard for a moment, but then he leaned towards her and said, A heart? Yes, little Casey. Once I did have a heart. Believe me, more heart than you could know. But time is the thief. Always the thief. And the heart is a distraction I can simply no longer afford. Saranus turned and approached the eye-shaped gem. He ran his spindly fingers over it as he said, This gem, Max, is quite special. It is called an umphalos, a stone of splendor. They are quite precious and very rare. And these particular umphalos has a name. They do that, you know. Give names to jewels that are particularly stunning in one way or another. This one is called the Singular Eye. You see, in my study of the esoteric arts over the years, I've learned that deep down in our minds, we are all somehow bound together at the very root of our being. A phenomenon the famous psychologist Jung called the collective unconscious. Primitives called it the survine. The singular I takes advantage of this particular facet of consciousness. It is a singularity, an event horizon in the dimension of thought. Because of this, it lets me gaze into the minds of others as easily as if I were gazing into my own. After all, since we are all merely aspects of the one, I should be able to know what you know, should I not? I can find out anything, extract any secret from your mind, no matter how hard you might try to withhold it from me. It's been very, very useful over the years, as you might imagine. Suddenly, Siren thrust his face behind the jewel. For a long, eerie moment, nothing happened. And then, the singular eye opened. The jewel was filled with something ineffable, indescribable and terrifying. It was like a doorway into another dimension had been suddenly blown free. And the singular eye became the whole universe for Max. It howled into his being with the force of a hurricane, flooding and drenching his body out to the very ends of his toes and his fingertips. He felt his own eyeballs driven into the back of his skull by the force of the concussion now pounding him. Max heard himself scream and scream. The singular eye hung in front of him, demanding, unrelenting, suddenly patched into his soul and as familiar as his own flesh. And behind it all was Siren. His thoughts and Max's thoughts had become one. He could feel Siren's greed, his thirst, his single-minded obsession as though it were his very own. Max could also see a kind of dark smudge in his own mind, one that he had not noticed before. He knew that without the singular eye, he would have never even been aware of it. And Siren was groping in that blackness, panicking now. Max could feel it. Siren kept trying to meld with the smudge and was rebuffed with each attempt. Where is the pendant? Where was it hidden? Saranus suddenly blurted out loud, spittle flying from his lips. Max struggled to answer. He coughed. He wanted to answer. He wanted to tell him more than anything in the world. The pendant! Where is it? I need it. Tell me where it is. Max's throat constricted. The desire to reveal the location of the pendant was overwhelming. He would have given anything, anything at all, just to tell Siren where it was. His mouth tried to form words. His jaw clenched as he tried to speak. But no words came. He simply gagged. He couldn't say anything because his conscious mind simply didn't know. And then it was over. The singular eye closed like a demure flower. Max felt his body collapse into the chair. He was panting feverishly, soaked in sweat and seeing stars. Saranus glared, eyes wet with rage. This had not gone how he had planned at all. Something was preventing the eye from working properly on Max. He cursed and slammed the jewel in frustration. A moment later, Saranus simply said, Let him out. Mafdet looked up questioningly. 
His amnesia. It's protecting him, keeping whatever he knows locked up. The answer is in his head, but you can't use one of these on him. It won't work. It's like his mind is being encrypted. Siren pondered for a moment. Yes, that's it. That must be it. Cryptonesia. An ancient Nuberian mentalist technique. To lack knowledge in the mind. Not even the singular eye can penetrate it. Ah, in truth I had expected some protection like this, but dearly hoped I was mistaken. Moffat reluctantly undid Max's restraints. Serranus let out a heavy sigh and said, Ah, lock them up below. I need time to think. Hey, Ian, Max said into the darkness. The trio had been locked inside what appeared to be someone's regular quarters on the ship, although there was almost no furniture in here at all. It was as though Sky Chambers didn't have a brig or a holding cell, and this was the best Saranus could come up with for now. Yeah, Ian replied. Nice to be in jail with you again. Ha, <sighs> same to you, Ian replied, laughing a little. Ow, Max said. Cut it out, Casey. It's nice to be in jail with you, too. Well, you didn't say that. Casey's voice complained in the darkness. They sat in silent darkness for another moment, and then Ian said, You know, I'm getting pretty scared, you guys. We'll get out of here, Max said. No, not that, Ian replied, shifting around in the dark. The book. I had totally forgotten about the wolves until Siren reminded me. Do you think I'm going to get killed by the wolves? Maybe not, Max offered hopefully, but actually feeling scared now himself. Maybe you changed what happened in the book. Maybe it doesn't happen that way anymore. Ian shook his head. No, I don't think it works like that. The book would show something different if it changed. Which means it didn't. I'm getting pretty scared now, you know. I'm not feeling good. Ian's mouth went dry as he spoke. The more he thought about it, the more afraid he got. It was just getting worse and worse inside his own head by the minute. It's gonna happen soon, I think, Ian whispered. I'm gonna end up like Sweet Lid after all. Don't say that, Casey said. You don't know for sure yet. But Ian couldn't stop thinking about it. He was going to die. And soon. Max, said Ian. Yeah. So, what did that I thing do to you? Max was silent for a moment, and then he said... It was pain. Lots of pain, mostly. Yeah, but there was one more thing. Saranus seemed to think the eye didn't work on me at all. But it seems like it might have worked a little bit. Really? Why? Casey piped up, interested now. Because... I can remember something now. Something from my old self. What? Ian and Casey said at once. Nothing important. Just, just like a little flash or something. This drink called Dandelion Smash. Everyone was silent. Then Casey asked, What's that? Do you know? And sort of. It was like this kind of fake drink. At least I think. Like when you make when you're a little kid, like when you're six. You take dandelions and you smash them all up and mix them in with water. Or lemonade. Sometimes it was lemonade. And you drink it. Or, or you pretend to, because if you really drank it, it's disgusting. I used to make it with Petunia when she was really little. I remember now. In New York, like 1900 or something like that. Everyone was silent for a moment. So, uh, what good does that do us? Ian asked. Oh, um, no good. Nothing at all. I was just saying, I remembered something. Well, if you'd remembered something, why couldn't you remember something better? That's lame, Ian snorted. I think it was a good thing to remember, Casey said softly. A very good thing to remember. And Max thought he could hear a smile in her voice. Hey, Case, Max said a few minutes later. Yeah, she answered. I have to ask, what is it with Siren and you? What did he mean when he said you and him would catch up later? And why are you so spooked by him? Max could feel the smile run away from Casey's lips in the darkness as he asked this. She was silent. Come on, Casey. He just scares me, that's all, Casey said in a small voice that sounded very much like a lie. 
And that's it? Max pressed. That's it, she replied. That's really, really it? Yes! Really? I don't want to talk about this anymore, Casey moaned and turned away from Max and Ian. A few hours later, the round doorway slid open, and two small figures slipped into the room without speaking, and the door closed behind them. As soon as the door was shut, a flashlight came on. Max couldn't make out the figures as one of them was shining the flashlight right in his eyes, but he braced himself for the worst. Suddenly, a shadowy figure lurched forward and grabbed Ian and punched him in the face. The sound of flesh slapping against flesh and Ian yelping in pain and surprise filled the room. Ace! A girl's voice hissed from behind the flashlight. Fat! said Ace, shaking out his hand from the punch. It was for sneaking off on us and letting us get caught by these freaking aliens! Cut it out! the girl said again, and this time Max recognized the voice. Sasha Foy. Ian was on the ground doing his best to keep from crying. He didn't want to give Ace the satisfaction. Leave him alone, Max snarled at Ace. You stay out of this, Ace snapped back, and Max was surprised to see Ace pointing a gun right at him. Guns don't work in the pocket, Max snapped without thinking. Oh yeah? They work inside a UFO. You want to see? Ace cocked the hammer and his eyes went crazy wide. Ian coughed and shook his head at Max in warning. And suddenly Max remembered that pocket powers didn't work inside of a sky chamber. So maybe that meant everything else was normal as well. Which meant that a gun would work. Max froze. Ian got to his knees and coughed out. I tried to warn you, Ace. I said, we've got to hide. We've got to be more careful. Didn't I say that? Ace nodded. Yeah, but you didn't say anything about anything like this. Ace opened his arms to indicate the alien craft around them. I didn't know, Ian said. I was just guessing. Ace's lip quivered in pent-up rage. Oh, yeah? Well, 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 little Ian, you didn't tell me about this book, now did you? And here he held up the book. You didn't guess about this. You knew. Holy smokes, how'd you get your hands on that? Max asked without thinking. I stole it from Saranus, just like Ian did. That pock-faced idiot actually left it out in the open. But Max suddenly sat up. What? That didn't sound like Saranus at all, Max thought. He was more careful, calculating. It was far too sloppy for him. Ace, you said you weren't going to be mean to them. Sasha's voice came from behind the flashlight. Oh, I'm not being mean. I'm just kind of saying. And without warning, Ace swung the book and wrapped Ian right across the face with the back cover and sent him sprawling again. That the little Serb VP ought to have told the Serb president about a certain book when he found it, like he was supposed to do in exchange for all the nice protection he got. Ace was in a rage now and he was pointing the gun at Ian. Now, don't act like you didn't do me dirty. You stole this book from Serranus. This book is what killed Sweetly. You figured that out, and then you went and got the book for yourself. Serranus told me all about it. And with these two, Ace waved the gun at Max and Casey, came along. You deserted your very own Sir brothers and sisters. You've left us behind to be captured and made slaves. You escape and take these two with you, but not us, using this book. But Ian was standing up now. Yeah, we left using this book, but only because you wouldn't listen to me. I told you something bad was going to happen with the UFOs, and it happened just like I said it would. And you call me paranoid, so shoot me if you want to, but it's your own fault. Know what? I don't want to hear that, Ace screeched at him. You see this? Ace held up a hand with a slave glyph burned into it. This freaking hurt a lot. And you know what else? I'm tired of being Moff that's little whipping boy. So you know what I'm going to do? Do you have any idea at all? What? Ian asked. First, I'm going to lose this stupid hospital dress. Ace plucked at his slave tunic. 
You get to wear it. Second, I'm taking your clothes. Get out of them and give them to me, now. What? I said, clothes off, geek. Ace pointed the gun to cure his modesty. Ian reluctantly started taking his shirt off, looking more than a little embarrassed. Casey and Sasha, no looking, he said, muffled by the shirt going up over his head. In a few minutes, Ian was the one wearing the slave tunic, and Ace was wearing Ian's clothes. Now, here's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to leave you the same way you left me. You can be my that shoeshine boy. You can shine his armor. You can get him his, his, whatever that stuff is he eats for breakfast. We're leaving. Sasha and I are going. We're using the book and we're leaving you behind. Ian's eyes suddenly went wide. No, Ace, you can't. Ace grinned. Oh, but I can. I am. Ian was suddenly in panic mode. No, 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 you, you don't understand. You're going to get killed, Ace. If you go in the book, you're going to die. Ace laughed. Yeah, right. You three went into the book and you didn't get killed. I'm serious, Ace. I've never been more serious about anything in my entire life. Oh, no. There's a pack of wolves. They're going to eat you if you go in the book. Something about Ian's insistent manner was starting to unnerve Ace, but he just didn't want to listen anymore. Quit trying to lie to me, little Ian. But say another word and I shoot you. Or better yet, I shoot your friends. I'm serious. Ian closed his mouth, utterly helpless now. Sash, let's go, Ace said, waving her over. Ian almost started talking again to warn Sasha, but then he saw the gun and caught himself just in time. But luckily, it seemed Sasha Foy had finally wised up on her own. No, Ace, I'm not going with you, came the voice behind the flashlight. No, Ace said. He looked at the book and then at Ian. You actually believe this little loser, don't you? He's got you scared. Ian smirked and then shrugged. Fine, stay, I don't care. There's a zillion other girls like you, and I'm starting to get sick of you anyway. Ace laughed again and opened the book. Have fun with Johnny Siren, and don't try to follow me. If you do, I'll shoot you. And then he was gone, and the book dropped to the floor with a monstrous thud, as though it weighed several times more than it really did. Ian was shaking as he went over to the book and picked it up. He's dead, Ian said to Sasha. He was dead the minute he went into the book wearing my clothes. I tried to tell him. Sasha pointed the flashlight at herself. I know. You tried to tell him a lot of things. He just didn't want to listen. So, Max said, thinking out loud, now we know. If it's written in the book, it has to actually happen, and there's no way to change it. Saranus wasn't lying about that. Sooner or later, events will chain together to make it come true. There is free will, yes. But it is also true that your destiny is already written in the stars. Yes, Ian nodded. Casey stood up, suddenly understanding something. But now we have the book again. We can escape. But Saranus said he didn't see me in any more pages of the book. Which means I don't enter it again. It means I can't enter it again, right? Max was perplexed, and he looked to Ian for answers. Unless he lied, Ian offered. No, Saranus doesn't lie. Not about stuff like that, at least, Max said. He believed it. I also believed I was going to get eaten by wolves, Ian said. And he was wrong. Excuse me, Sasha interrupted. What do you want? Casey hissed. I said, excuse me, Sasha repeated over Casey. I would, but there's no excuse for you, Casey snapped back. Sasha shined the flashlight right in Casey's eyes. Who spoke? Is there a cockroach over there or something? Stop it, you two, Max said. She's talking skunk about me and you're siding with her, Casey protested. We don't have time for this, Max exploded. What is it, Sasha? Well, I don't know if this helps, but I overheard Saranus talking about how you can use the book to find Mr. E. Max and Ian turned and stared dumbfounded at Sasha. Well, we were all serving dinner to Saranus and Moffat, Sasha began. 
and the other centurion, I can't pronounce his name, Neff something, and the guys in the black suits Saranus always has with him. Anyway, Saranus starts going on about how you, Max, and how you were trying to find Mr. E. He went on and on and on about how you had no idea who Mr. E even was, and you've been trying for like a hundred years or something. He kept laughing like that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard of. And Moffat goes, so you know how to find him, right? And Saranus goes, yes, of course I do. And he starts saying it's all simple. All of the books were actually made by Mr. E a really long time ago. And each one of them, on the last page, is a kind of back door which will take you right to him. There's a riddle you have to solve, but it's supposedly easy if you know Mr. E's actual name. Max, Ian, and even Casey were hanging on to her every word by now. But Sasha just stopped cold. Well, Ian finally blurted out. Well, I don't know if I should actually say the name out loud, Sasha said. But you know what the name is, right? Ian almost shouted at her. Of course. They all sat there for a moment and thought. It's a trap, Max said finally. Yeah, I think so too, Ian chimed in. Me three, said Casey. But why would Saranus just say it like that, Ian asked and then answered his own question. He wanted you to overhear and tell us. But why would he want to help me find Mr. E, Max asked. Why does Saranus want me to find him? Because Mr. E has this pendant thing Jadith is after. Or he knows where it is, Casey said, her intuition jumping. He needs you to get to Mr. E to get it. And then he thinks he's going to take it from you. That must be it. Ian stared at Casey. Nice, Casey. Yeah. Max got up and paced for a good moment and then said, We have to do it anyway. What? Ian spouted. Think about it. He's gambling. If he needs us, or me, to get it from Mr. E then Mr. E must not want him to have it. Maybe he's like a guardian of some kind. And Jadith is getting impatient. She's leaning on him to produce it. Siren promised her he could, but so far, Siren has failed. So now he's getting desperate. He's taking chances he'd rather not take. And that's good news for us. It means we must have a chance also to keep it away from him, or maybe even destroy it. So I say we gamble too. You heard Jadith. She wants to make everyone slaves. We have to keep this thing away from her. And we have to get rid of her and the ships and the centurions and the pocket and get things back to normal. And we need help. And Mr. E seems to be able to do things neither Saranus or Jadith can do. Like, like make a book. Maybe he'll be on our side once we explain to him what's happening. Ian thought for a second and then nodded slowly. Yeah, maybe. We don't have any other options, Max said. Either that, or we stay here and start doing Moff Dead's laundry. Oh, we go, said Casey. Yeah, I'd rather go, agreed Ian. Me too, said Sasha meekly. Oh no, said Casey. You're staying. Casey, said Ian and Max at once. No, she treats me like garbage, and then you two start siding with her. We're not siding with anyone except whoever's not working for Jadith, said Max. And you're not working for Jadith, Sasha, right? No, said Sasha emphatically. Well, there it is then. Besides, she's the only one who knows Mr. E's real name, so we need her for the riddle. Casey fell silent, glaring. Okay, let's go. Ian, open the book to the very last page. Ian nodded and opened the book. As soon as he did, the four of them were suddenly in a small, black obsidian room. There were no windows or doors or visible light source, yet they could see just fine. The surface of the walls was sheer but non-reflective and made of a material that for some reason reminded Max of the interior of a sky chamber. Max noticed that there was a diamond-shaped protrusion from the wall. It had a hole in it, something like a keyhole. Hey, that wasn't like the last time, Ian said. We didn't even see ourselves in the page first. It's a back door, remember? Casey said. That's why Saranus didn't see Max in any of the pages. Back doors must work different. Suddenly, thirty or so keys appeared, hanging on hooks in the wall. That must be the riddle. Sasha, quick, what's Mr. E's real name? You can say it out loud now, Ian asked. Enki, she replied. They said his name is Enki. Ian went and examined the keys, being careful not to touch any of them. 
and suddenly he saw that each one had a hieroglyph on it. He wrinkled his brow in confusion, and the hieroglyph suddenly morphed into letters, such that each now had a letter of the English alphabet on them, A, B, C, etc., and several of the keys disappeared altogether. Huh, looks like it changes to fit whatever alphabet you know or something, Ian remarked. What are we supposed to do, spell his name? Max asked. Ian went over to the diamond-shaped thing on the wall and examined it. No, we're supposed to choose a key, I think. But only one of them. There's only one keyhole. That's easy then, just like Sasha said, replied Max, taking the key with the letter E off the wall and handing it to Ian. This one, Mr. E. Ian took the key and was about to use it when he suddenly stopped. No, not this one. Saranus said you needed to know his whole name in order to solve the riddle. You already knew Mr. E, and that wasn't good enough. Ian replaced the key on the wall and pulled another one down. Casey watched him and looked confused. She said, Z? What's with the Z? He's Anki, not Zorro. Ian smiled. Not Z. He turned the key. N! It's the N key. Anki. Get it? Of all the corny, Max was saying. It's funny, Ian said, laughing and fitting the key into the diamond. At least Mr. E has a sense of humor and nothing else. Ian turned the key, and several things happened at once. From out of nowhere, Johnny Siren was suddenly in their midst. He was leering and on the balls of his feet, ready to pounce. How he had gotten here, none of them could tell. At the same moment, the room dissolved like a dream, and the floor disappeared. They found themselves falling down a tunnel in pitch blackness. Siren lunged after them. His hand caught hold of Casey's leg. She screamed and kicked at him, but his fingers were like a vise, cutting off circulation to her foot. He was like a banshee and would not let go. As they were conveyed along this odd transit, Siren was determined to hitch a ride. Then they heard Siren howl, and he was gone as mysteriously as he had arrived. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. 